This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Good to see you on this holiday weekend. Always a lot of fun, you know, to have a holiday just from, of course, the standpoint of some time off, but also, you know, I think a really important time, you know, oftentimes we forget just how wonderful we have it in this land. And, you know, I've lived in other countries and around the world, traveled a lot, and I'm always just mindful of the fact that uh, how uh, good we do have it, uh, how many people, you know, just regularly, uh, literally dying to get into this country to have some of the, the uh, benefits that we have. And, and I think, you know, sometimes we look at the difficulties and the disagreements between people and we kind of lose perspective about that. And, you know, I was reminded just a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, I'm originally from Texas and... Uh, uh, and when that trailer load of uh, immigrants, uh, you know, were stuck, uh, they paid coyotes, and then those guys just dumped them off in the middle of nowhere to die. And I thought about the, you know, the risk that people take and the money that they spend, oftentimes up to a year's worth of their salary, just to get into a trailer and not knowing whether those people were abandoned them. Um, it often turns out bad with the coyotes, you know, just living on the border growing up. I, we just saw that kind of difficulty all the time. And um, I, just to have what we have. And so, you know, if you're thinking like things aren't going well or we've got a lot to complain about, you know, just maybe remind yourself that people are literally giving their lives to be here. And uh, maybe it might make us appreciate what we have. So, uh, uh, it, you know. Let me encourage you to uh, tomorrow stop and just give thanks to God for the good things that are in your life because of being here. All right, well, welcome to another installment uh, in the letter of Romans. And, uh, you know, over the past, uh, not just weeks, we're actually now a couple of months, you know, into this series. Uh, We've been looking at the letter through those internal cues in the letter and realizing that the letter is so much bigger than just simply the Romans road, uh, talking about our own personal salvation and justification, and looking at those, the larger themes of the letter, uh, looking at, at those first four chapters, talking about the new creation, or the, I mean the old creation, and the need for redemption, the need for renewal, how that creation itself speaks of the glory, the majesty of God. It points to us about what is right, what is true, and how things in nature are revealing to us a general revelation uh, about the goodness and the character, the nature of God, whether we ever have the specific revelation that is the scriptures, the Torah in, the ca- in this case uh, that he's referring to, uh, and that we know that what is good and what is right, what is just because of the things that are revealed to us through the creation itself. And then uh, looking in those next four chapters, he begins to speak about what, it, what a new creation is, how that transforms us, what the working is, uh, leading us there to chapter 8 in which he tells us that all of creation is longing for that day in which the sons of God 
will be revealed, in which uh, the transformative power of the gospel will be made evident to the all of creation. And so the cosmos, not just the world, but the, literally the entire cosmos is longing for this revelation, longing for this to come to pass so that, uh, that all of creation is righted, that everything is put in right order. And then we follow those next four chapters through to chapter 12, leading us to kind of the apex of our study and that simple fact that there is the transformative power of the gospel and through that transforming power that we have been renewed and made able to know and to do His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That apart from the transformative power of God, that we are stuck like all of creation with this sense of longing, but the power of the gospel is one that allows us, that enables us, empowers us, and so that we then at that point can choose to renew our minds to know and to do His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, there is something that happens, a, a switch that is flipped whenever we give ourselves over, when we become a new creation, that we are then empowered and able to do so. We'll talk about that more in detail. Today, as we get here in chapter 6, uh, we're going to be building on everything we talked about in those first five chapters. If you were here last week, uh, you know that uh, there was a specific discussion about the role of Torah and that Torah was not there to um, give us new life, but instead to point to us about the contrast between the way the world is and what, is, what it looks like to be walking with Him, to be in a relationship with Him, that He is a holy God and therefore holy other, and that we are not, and we recognize through both general revelation and the specific revelation of Torah of our deep need to become new creatures, new creation, not just in the sense of that we need more or better information, not just in the sense of that we need to improve a little and get life improvement, but this idea that there is a wholesale need for change, a whole new renewal of the creation uh, because uh, of what God is doing in His world. And so that brings us to these questions here uh, that He's going to be asking in the beginning of chapter 6. He does so through the imagery of baptism and the resurrection, uh, and from there, over these next few chapters, he'll add additional imagery of slavery and death and resurrection and the creation itself to help us understand how pervasive the transformative power of the gospel actually is and, of course, how desperately we need it. That's the call to Christ that we're going to be looking at. So with that said, let's get right into Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, if you'll please follow along in whatever translation you have there, whether on your app or in a Bible. Uh, either way, let me invite you to do that. Uh, your, my favorite translation, of course, is always the one in your lap, the one you're actually reading. Let's take a look. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, therefore... Sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural, limit, your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading us to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you become slaves of God, the fruit get, uh, you get leads you to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So he opens with a question, and very much like when we were looking there in chapter 5 and we talked about what the therefore was there for, uh, and re recognizing that there is a build-up from those things that we've been reading, we want to remind ourselves again that this, of course, would have been all 16 chapters read in a single sitting. They didn't like read it and go, now I wonder what Paul meant by that. They were living in the day and time uh, that when Paul was writing this to them. The letter is written to them about their specific situation, so they're not trying to figure out what those relationships are or whom he's talking to or what he's talking about. They are being addressed directly, so very much like when you get a letter from a family member, from home, when you have something that's written specifically to you, it's addressing things, maybe a conversation you've had, maybe questions you've had, conversations you've had, whatever, and so there is a sense of direct connection to that. And so they would not, you don't, you know, sit down, well, let me rephrase that. 
I hope that when you get a letter from somebody, you don't sit down and begin to dissect that letter, reading between the lines, trying to find issues with those letters, or trying to figure out what did they actually mean when they said those things. If you do, that's very unhealthy. I just want to encourage you, don't do that. But, uh, you know, if we have a very healthy relationship and we engage with those things that are being said to us, we know what they mean because we have relationship already. And so Paul is writing to a church. We don't know why he's saying exactly all of those things. We don't have a previous letter where they've written to him. What we do know is the situation. In the situation, Paul is writing to a church that he did not establish. His disciples, people that he has discipled, have gone and established that church, established that work, and that they are predominantly a Jewish congregation. They are Jewish by, uh, by heritage and by faith. And so these Jewish Christians uh, have questions as they are having these people who were former Gentiles come into the church and become a part of things there's questions about what parts of this do we need for them to uh, follow in terms of Torah and the, and the larger expectation of all the cultural things, the food restrictions and other uh, cultural type of things, uh, the, the, uh, the experiential part of their culture and heritage, or whether these things, whether they're just keeping the law exactly, how does that work out? So there's this this difficulty that they are having. And so some people are telling them that, no, you need to culturally become like us in every way. Other people are saying, no, I don't think that's required of them. And so there's this debate that has risen in the church and Paul is writing to help them find their way through it. So through the letter, especially in those first few chapters, Paul is sparring with an imagined Judaizer, someone who is wanting these Greek Christians to become Jewish in culture. Now, like I said, we don't have a previous letter where we would know the exact questions were asked or whatever, but we do see that Paul's use of language and rhetoric to build an argument with somebody who is not actually there. So sometimes when you're reading it, you get confused. At one moment, it sounds like Paul's leaning this way, and the next moment, it sounds like he's leaning that way. And what he's doing is he is pitting these, it's a rhetorical device to, to pit these uh, ideas, uh, these thoughts, these theologies against one another, and then bringing it to a conclusion for you and I to understand where he's going. We would say uh, in the vernacular in our culture, when anytime you have someone pitting things against one another, is that they are playing devil's advocate. Ever heard that phrase used? It does not mean that you are arguing for something demonic or evil, right? Although usually that's the way it was used whenever I was a kid in school and I would argue with the teacher, but that's another story altogether. The real sense in which we say playing devil's advocate is the idea that you're pitting two ideas against one another, and through that tension you're trying to make sense of things, oftentimes pointing to the absurdity of the other person's argument. In other words, you're taking what they said and you're showing where it logically leads, which is illogical in itself. Uh, so oftentimes that is a tool that we deploy in, uh, like, uh, in, not only in rhetoric, but or in debate or something like that in an effort to point things out. So Paul says to them, opening that up, he asks the question, what shall we say then based on everything we've said about Torah, its value, uh, its great value to us to teach and instruct us, but it does not have value to save us. And we know that when uh, Jesus gave of his life, his, what he did was a contrast to that of Adam, where Adam 
sinned, and through his one sin, death came to all, that through Jesus, his one uh, saving act was able to bring life to all. And so, uh, but yet there were many sins in the consequence of those things, and yet his one act was enough to cover for all sin. So then he says, so what shall we say then? What's the conclusion? What do we learn from those things? And this is where Paul begins to play devil's advocate. And he says, well then if Torah has made sin abound, would it not lead us to the conclusion that we should sin all the more so that grace might abound? In other words, he's saying, if, if what Torah does, if you're saying that Torah cannot save us, if Torah cannot rescue us, if Torah just simply points out that we are sinful, uh, wouldn't it make sense that we should just sin all the more so that grace might abound, so that, that grace would increase? Now, he's not actually saying that because we read the Torah, we sin more. That is a fallacy, that's a, a logical inconclusion, you know, that, that is a, a, a fallacy of thought. When I become aware of things, it points out what I'm already doing that is out of step with the things that are holy. For instance, in the raising of my children, you know, uh, they are now all adults, now I'm raising, helping to raise grandchildren, right? And whenever I explain some things to them, they don't always know that those things are wrong in our house. They maybe see their friends do it. They may see other things that are happening in the world. And so they might conclude that they can do it also. And then when I say to them, no, you shall not pass. No, when I say to them that that is out of bounds uh, in that moment, then they are learning. It doesn't make what they did particularly uh, uh, one way or another. It points out, hey, in our house, you're running afoul of the rules in our house. Now, if you continue in that, you are making sin abound, if you will. In other words, they were doing no wrong in that sense that there was, there was innocence on their part. They just colored outside of the lines. And then I said, no, you can't do those things. And so now they're aware of them. If they continue to do that, then they are sinning in my eyes, not necessarily saying that they're sinning in the eyes of the Lord. We understand that in a really practical way. If I don't know something's wrong, uh, I, it's not that I'm trying to be uh, sinful or I'm trying to do something wrong. I just didn't simply know. When I become aware of those things and I do them anyhow, maybe you've had your parents tell you, maybe you've said that. You say, well, you didn't know any better, but now you know. And the expectation is what? Now that you know, you better not do it again. Or there will be consequences, right? It's just the natural fallout of things. And so when you and I come to the Torah, the Torah begins to make us aware of who God is, the holiness of God, the rightness of relating to God, and it points out to us that how what we do in the world uh, runs uh, counter to those things. Now, going back all the way to Romans chapter 1, nature itself tells us that many of these things are out of bounds. Not all of them, but nature itself, creation itself, speaks to us about the goodness of God. And from those things, we conclude not only what is good and what is right, but also we recognize when things are afoul. We have an expectation about what goodness and kindness looks like. We know that things like murder and stealing from people and things like that are wrong. There is a deep sense from all of creation that speaks to us about things that are right and wrong 
And yet then we have specific revelation in the scripture that further defines those things and creates more of a sense of expectation. Now, in this moment, he says, if, if Torah makes sin abound, would that not lead us, in essence, to a false conclusion that we should sin all the more so grace will abound all the more? If, if Jesus, by one response to many sins, brought salvation for all, wouldn't it just make sense they're trying to argue, they're making a false argument, wouldn't it be sense that we should just sin all the more? And Paul replies, that is the stupidest thing I've ever... No, no, he doesn't say that. That's, that's the Hal Hester paraphrase. See, I told you I've been working on gentleness, and sometimes, you know, I need help, so... No, actually what he says is, he says, he points out the absurdity of the argument by pointing to the newness of creation. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? In other words, if you have died to your old way of life, there is a, by necessity a transformation that is taking place, that the power of God is working in us to make us a new creation. We are not ourselves, we're not our old self anymore. We are now our new selves. And through that power, through, the, through baptism, is this not just an illustration, but a spiritual reality of transformation that is taking place in us. That's, that God working through those things. And he says, look, this is the big picture of becoming a new creation as we look at this whole picture of baptism. And he says, so all who have been baptized, now how many would that be? Well, in the early church, that would have been all. In the early church, as we look at the example from the book of Acts, at, at every single conversion in the book of Acts, that people responded. It was the natural response to that. They heard the message, and a natural response to that was that they would get baptized. Now, that spiritual reality that they would experience and that was a, a, a symbolic uh, transformation uh, was also a spiritual reality where God was working in them and through them so that all who have been baptized were buried with Christ, they put the old life to death, and have been raised anew so that there is an expectation that the transformative power of the gospel is working in you and that you should be a different kind of person now because you, if you have been baptized in His likeness, that means you died to yourself, and through the power of the gospel, you've been transformed into a new creation. We might say it this way, that uh, if you think in terms of like a computer, that when, when you put in, you have an old operating system that is dysfunctional, maybe it's got a lot of hiccups in it, maybe it's got a lot of patches in it and stuff, and you keep using that old system, and eventually you will think to yourself, I want to buy a new computer. Why? Because you're tired of sitting there going Control-Alt-Delete, Control-Alt-Delete every few minutes, although I think now they've fixed that where it's supposed to be how you start a computer. But anyhow, uh, my, my, my whole point just simply being this, when the system is, gets messed up in layers and layers of, of problems and patches and everything else, there's nothing like getting a new computer that all the system is properly written and worked out and you turn it on and, and everything works faster, everything works correctly and you don't have to spend your whole afternoon going Control-Alt-Delete, Control-Alt-Delete and starting all over again and wishing that you would save that in between time and et cetera. You know, uh, it, it ends that frustration because you have a new, a clean operating system. It's kind of like, say for instance, 
if you're used to using a Windows machine and you convert to a Macintosh, and so suddenly, instead of everything failing, it actually works. Okay, maybe I'm a little biased. Okay, but anyhow, uh, I, you know, uh, I, but you may have another illustration, like maybe you upgraded from XP all the way to Windows, yeah, whatever it is now, you know, and uh, I, I don't know, I, and I don't care. But, um, uh, but nonetheless, you know, I mean, they, when you change an operating system, you enable things so that it can do what it could not do before. Now, when you and I come to Christ, you and I, by the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, have been enabled to do what we could not do before. In other words, the old person has been put to death, and the new person has been raised from the dead. In this case, uh, we're, we're not talking about the flesh, we're talking about what's happening in the spirit man, and so there is a tension. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to be talking about that tension. Uh, it's kind of the, like the now and the not yet of the kingdom. There's the realities, uh, those spiritual realities in which we experience the transforming power of the gospel now. Salvation, hope, the, the, the ability to begin to walk in the power of the spirit so that we can go to Romans chapter 12, again, keeping the whole letter together. And it says that you renew your mind. It's a command. It's in the imperative. You do this. It doesn't say, I will do this for you. It says, you do it. Renew your mind uh, through the word of God so that you can do his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, there is a partnership that begins to happen that by the transformative power of the gospel, you have now been enabled, ability that you didn't have before when you were dead in your transgressions, you have been enabled, you have a new operating system uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can do the good, pleasing, perfect will of God. When you come into counter with the Word of God, that you hear the voice of God, that you can be transformed by His power, and you can do things in a different way than you did them before. Now, previous to that, you were dead in your transgressions and could not. So he says there is a spiritual reality that has taken place as you've been baptized into His death now, I know immediately when I start to say things like that, there are some people in the room, if you've had a, a bit of theological training, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, I don't know how I feel about that. It sounds very sacramental, uh, you know, very Eastern Orthodox, very you know, Catholic uh, or maybe primitivist kind of uh, uh, teachings. And maybe other people are, well, you know, I thought it was by faith. And, and you know, I, what does baptism have to do with Can I just point out to you, and I don't want to get deep into the weeds on this, but I'll just simply point out to you that when, we, when we're talking about what's happening here is that, one, nothing is a throwaway in the Bible. Nothing is a throwaway. God just doesn't have you do things because it looks cool. Everything is to connect us deeper in terms of all of our spiritual practices and everything else. It is intentional. God gives us. And so while I don't want to go all the way into the kind of sacramental end of it, neither do I want to just have a, a kind of throwaway thing that we don't, that it just doesn't mean anything. It's just symbolic only. And somewhere we stand in the tension of those two things and recognize that historically the church has defended both ends of the spectrum. And so we stand in the middle and we hang on to both things recognizing that there really is spiritual change. It happens when we encounter God in the communion so that it's not just something that we remember and think about. But neither do we expect that because I took communion that now I've been given something 
when I don't have a relationship with God. We live in a tension of expectation that God meets us when we pray, when we encounter God, when we're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, that God is working in us, through us, in our situation, in those events in our life. We have an expectation that God meets us there. And so in baptism, the same thing is true. We have an expectation that God meets us in that, and He's not just only making a picture, but He's also, there is a transformative event that happens. The old manner of life is given way, not just in theory, not just in theological, uh, theologically, but as a spiritual reality. And the breaking in of the kingdom of God in that present reality, when we die physically to the old man, or excuse me, when we die spiritually to the old man, but we are still alive physically, the old body, we are then living out attention. That, that's what our spiritual disciplines are all about, of bringing in that flesh to yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit within us. That's why he says that we renew our minds, and through that then God begins to transform, that to use the, that present reality uh, so that we put the spirit man in charge of the body, and the body yields to the direction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit within us. In other words, we're not doing it in our own strength. It's not a, man, a matter of just manning up. If you could just man up, you would have already done it by now. And, and I, look, I know some people who are very disciplined, right? And they will practice spiritual disciplines all the time, but to very little avail. I've mentioned to you, like one of my teachers along the way, that he had memorized the Bible in such a way that if you quoted a verse, he could quote the one before and after it. He was a very disciplined person. However, I did not see any fruit in his life other than his ability to memorize. He was not full of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I did not see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in his life. I learned a lot of good things from him. He was very intelligent, very disciplined. But I did not see those disciplines producing a fruit in which I would say that he loved God and loved others. That's not maturity. That's willpower. So as the transforming power of the gospel is working in us as these new creations, it's transforming us and we are becoming more like him. In fact, he's asking the question, how could it not be so? I mean, if, if, if what has happened to us, if the power of the gospel is at work in us, then we should be being transformed. Now, this is a conundrum for a lot of people right here because they find themselves in that tension that we're going to talk about next week, chapter 7, and we see our failures and our mistakes. We also see our victories, and we're living in between those things because we are dealing with this old man who remembers his old way of life and even craves those things, trying to dictate to my body, what it will do, and the spirit man telling my body, you're not going to do those things, that's not the way we live anymore, we love God, we want to be like Him, and that battle ensues internally, that's where we all live currently. So at moments we have great victory, in moments we have great sadness over our sin. Now, the problem is, is that for a lot of us, we kind of live there so much so that there's very little victory. Like we can, we'll say, you know, if, we, if you're asked about a victory, maybe you might talk about the moment you came to salvation. You might talk about a couple of other instances. But in the sense of like, 
having a, 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 a confidence deep within you that you are on the way, that your trajectory has changed, that life has changed, that you're becoming an empowered person and living out of the, the, the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit is manifesting in you so that you are full of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And, and that, that many of us live in a place where we have zero sense of victory. And that becomes the condemnation of the world, right? I mean, uh, quick to point out, and I've even seen it, like I said, in terms of people who have been Christians a long time. Even some people who are very disciplined and practice spiritual disciplines on a regular basis and yet are not experiencing any sense of victory in their life. And then the debate becomes, well, did they ever know the Lord or not? I've heard it said, kind of depending on what camp you're in. If you're more Calvinist, you'd say, well, they were never saved. If you're more Arminian, they go, they must have lost their salvation. And we continue that argument, which is not fruitful either. But anyhow, nonetheless, there's a lot of us that are living in that place of not experiencing much victory in life. And, and so the question becomes, what is the power of the gospel? Is there the power of the gospel to save, or do I just have to man up and make myself do these things? And if we live in that place, I guarantee you that we get into chapter 7, and we go, I feel absolutely defeated. I'm just like Paul. I can't do anything different. I can't do anything right. And we, that's why we sang the song this morning, right? I'm not enough. Anyone here ever feel like you're not enough? Hello? If, if, if you didn't raise your hand, you should. I know, some of you are a little, you know, like, I don't, is he, do I have to raise my, that's weird, I don't want to. You're not enough. That's okay. That's the message. You aren't enough. But here's the good news. You don't ever have to be. That the Spirit of God within you is more than enough. And so it's His transformative power at work in us for those of us who believe. Now, it's important at that moment when you and I talk about that, what we mean by believe, that we need to re-establish what we mean by belief. We do not mean just simply mental assent. There is a, a tension in the church today that has reduced belief only to the idea of mental assent. I think these things, and therefore I believe them, which is not true. There is an old preacher story. I don't know if it's true or not. And I hate just saying that, can I just tell you? But what I call the old preacher stories are the things I heard in Bible college that somebody, and I just you know, scribbled them all down so I could tell those stories later on because they sounded really cool and they illustrated it, and now I don't know if it's true or not. Anybody here ever heard stories like that? Well, anyhow, maybe from mom and dad. And, and so nonetheless, and, you know, my point just simply being, uh, there was a, an old, old story about one of the Walensas that was walking a tightrope over like something like the Niagara Falls and uh, made his way back and forth a couple of times and everybody was applauding and cheering. And then he got a wheelbarrow out and he walked over with the wheelbarrow and, uh, and everybody applauded. And then he put stuff in the wheelbarrow. He just started loading it up till it was really heavy. And he took all that stuff over the wheelbarrow and dumped it out and everybody was like, wow, that's great. And he says, how many people here believe that I can carry a person across the falls. And everybody was like, yeah! He said, okay, who's my first volunteer? Silence. That's the moment when you realize that belief and thinking something are not the same thing. 
You and I depend on belief every day of our life. Maybe it's something as simple as you have an alarm clock and you set that alarm clock to get you up at 6 o'clock in the morning, especially if you're not a morning person, and you say to yourself, I believe it will wake me up at 6 o'clock. I'm banking on it that I'm going to get to work on time and get everything done that I'm supposed to do because that thing's going to go off. Never mind the fact that it's summertime and the power might go out anyhow, but that's another story altogether. You and I believe that that's what's going to happen. We get in our cars and we say, hey, I will be there in 10 minutes. I'm going to the other side of the county. I think I'm going to be there in 10 minutes. That's almost unrealistic in itself, right? Because the thing is, is not only I don't know if the car is going to make it, but the other part of it is, is that I don't know who might get in my way. It's a great act of faith every time you get in a car. Hello? I've seen you drive. So anyhow, uh, no, um, you've seen me drive too. Anyhow, my point simply being this. Belief is when my thought process turns into action. I respond. I have the expectation of who God is and that how he's working in me and through me. And so there is a response that is necessitated out of these things. So when we say that we are saved by grace, then the Holy Spirit begins to move in us and we respond. And part of that response is the physical act of baptism. There's lots of things that are required that the scripture talks to us about, about physically responding to things because we are a body, not just a mind. When you encounter the Holy Spirit, you experience the presence of God, and you go, I, it's hard to articulate. You go, well, I just, I just have this sense. I mean, and maybe you might even talk about having a little quiver in your tummy. Uh, you feel things in your body. Uh, we are not called to be, in the heavens, spirits sitting on clouds. That is not in the New Testament. Nowhere do you become an angel, disembodied spirit, and sit on a cloud. That is paganism that has worked its way into the church. It is not, it, it's great medieval uh, art and stuff like that. It is not in the scriptures. Book, chapter, and verse. We are raised bodily just as Jesus was raised bodily from the dead and said, here, put your fingers here, put your hand in my ribbon side. There is an expectation of a physical resurrection in which you and I will stand before him and every knee will bow, physical knees, bodies, bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So nonetheless, we have this whole thing and there is a, these interactions with you and I in which where we are encountering and we are putting the old man into its place as you and I wait for the day in which our bodies will be redeemed. I'm really looking forward to that one, especially the way I felt when I got up this morning. Anybody else want to testify? Okay, so... Nonetheless, we're going to have that, that resurrection uh, presence and power at work within us. But in the meantime, we are encountering the Spirit of God uh, through these uh, things. And, and so our body registers that. And part of our spiritual discipline then is where we are training this old body with all of its old memories... Someday when you and I are free of this body and we get our new body, it will be significantly better because I don't, my, my old self will have a fresh start. My physical self will have a fresh start. But in the meantime, by the power of the Spirit, uh, we, you and I are conditioning this body to react and to interact with the Spirit of God. And that's why we have the disciplines. Things, for instance, like fasting. I use fasting as a common example because you and I live in a food-saturated society, do we not? I mean, one of the things I love about living in the world today, in the world in which we live in, is that I can get strawberries all year long. 
That's not just because I live in Florida, because there are months when we do not get Florida strawberries. We get them from Chile, or we get them from somewhere else in the world. I get to eat mangoes, I get to eat avocados, uh, those kind of things year-round, because uh, we have an amazing supply chain that goes around the world. You and I live in a, such a food-saturated culture that we think it's normative to eat at least three times a day, maybe five or six, you know, then there's that midnight snack where we get some ice cream, and you, none of you know what I'm talking about. Yes, you do. We have a food-saturated culture in that, like last night, uh, some friends of mine came in to spend a couple of days with us, and what's the first thing I asked them? Hey, what do you want to do for dinner? And then why we, when we, after we finished dinner, we, even had, we hadn't even had dessert yet, and we began to talk about, what are we having for dinner tomorrow? And then what are we going to do for food on the 4th of July because you can't have a holiday unless you have an enormous, we, you know, I mean like the American holiday is you don't eat till you're satisfied, you eat until you hate yourself. That button. I know I've heard some of you talk about your Thanksgiving pants, okay, so me too. Anyhow. I love food. You love food. It is normative in our culture. We celebrate it and everything else. So here's one of the things. I know that that is my flesh, right? Not saying my body is bad, not that I hate my body, nothing like that, okay? Don't get off into all that kind of anti-flesh, anti, you know, uh, the, the whole Gnostic kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about. Don't go to the extreme. But what I do know is that there, there is a tension between my body and my spirit. And so one of the things that fasting does for me is it gets me to, one, return all of that time that we spent on food. Making, enjoying, fellowshipping, all the things that we do around food. And I, I, I redeem that time. Some of you, you probably need to do the same thing with Facebook or some other social media. You probably get a couple of hours a day back, right there. And so, I, spiritual discipline is where I'm putting that on the shelf, not because my flesh is bad, but because it dictates everything. And I put that thing on the shelf, and I redeem that time. And then I am also like putting, making myself work through the issues of what my flesh is craving. I don't know about you, but just going without food is not particularly spiritual. If you've ever been around me when I'm hungry, you'll know there's nothing particularly spiritual about me not eating food. How about you? Anyone here, you go, well, I get really spiritual the moment I, you know, don't have anything to eat. And Look, we make Snickers bars commercials, right? About hangry for a reason, right? Because we know what that person's like. You know what you're like when you get hangry and you're not yourself anymore, right? I mean, uh, uh, the truth is, is that when we stop to do those things and we give that time now to, to prayer, if you just try to fast to like kind of manipulate God, I'm sure no one here has ever tried to manipulate God. God, if you do this, then I'll do... No, you didn't do that. But other people at other churches do stuff like that. They try to manipulate God, and sometimes they do it by, they try to manipulate God by fasting. Well, if I just don't eat, then God, you'll see how serious I am. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. 
When we look at how Jesus, like when we go into the Gospels and we're watching with Jesus in the fasting, and what happens is that he is getting prepared to be in the wilderness and to be with his Father. And so he's taking the time away. He's putting the food away. He doesn't have to do all that preparation. But here's the other part, is that there is spiritual warfare that is happening so that when he comes encounter with the devil, we say, oh, wow, look at that. The devil, man, what a mean guy he is. Look at that. He waited till he was hungry waited until he was alone and took advantage of the situation. But Jesus gives us the answer, and he says what? That he is satisfied with God. In fact, whenever he is, when the disciples come up to him and he's talking to the Samaritan woman, and they're like going, hey, uh, we brought food, and he doesn't seem to care. And they start pressing him, and he goes, I have food that you know nothing about. He's telling them, I'm satisfied in God. It's not that he wasn't physical, that there wasn't physical sensations, it wasn't, but that he has found his satisfaction in God, his being with God, and that begins to satisfy his, his, his physical body, becomes satisfied in that moment with the very presence of God. And when you and I encounter God and we have physical experiences of those encounters, it is because we are a whole being. We are not disembodied spirit. We're not phantoms. We're not ghosts. In fact, in the scripture, that's always a bad thing. You and I are persons with bodies and physical experiences, and the spiritual disciplines work to bring this physical body, this creature, into a line with the, with the God who made me, and I get still. Oftentimes in church, we think we'll just get ourselves all worked up into a lather through uh, you know, worship or something, and we wonder why then we don't experience the presence and the power of God in a more definitive way. We don't hear His voice. You do not need to get worked up into a lather. You need to get still and know that He is God. And so in that stillness, Jesus got still out in the wilderness and heard the voice of His Father. He let everything else fall aside so He could do that kind of focus. And so there is this spiritual power that comes through that discipline, not because he went without food, but because he was refocusing himself and putting the creature in its proper place so that he could interact with God and bring his body yielded along with his spirit, yielded to the power and the presence of God. And so the spirit man was in charge, no longer the physical man, and he benefited from it. He had these encounters, and he did it over and over and over again. Now, I, just a question for you. If Jesus regularly needed times of prayer and fasting and connecting with God the Father, how about you? Right? So you and I need those spiritual disciplines to help keep the old man in check. It's not something you do once and done, but it's something that we continually do in drawing ourselves into his presence, knowing him and hearing his voice so that we can better walk those things out. If I use the disciplines correctly with the intent of quieting the demands of my flesh, I can say no to sin and I can hear the voice of God and be satisfied in God. So it could be fasting, could be daily Bible reading. Sometimes people use daily Bible reading. I, like I said about my, my teacher, he could quote all kinds of Bible. And so some people just out of sheer will will do their daily Bible reading. And then they come to me afterwards and they go, look, I've been reading my Bible for years and I don't see how it's helping me. I don't see how I'm changing. I don't see how it's uh, having an effect on me. And I've been doing these things. And I hear people all the time say, I'm just really disappointed. I've been reading my Bible for a long time and I just, I don't experience the victory that comes from it. 
Can I tell you the victory that comes from it is one, first of all, that I'm looking for the interaction, not just for the rules, but I'm looking for how God is interacting with the people. I'm looking how Jesus is interacting with the Father. One of the things that was first done for me as a new Christian was my friend sat me down, Andy Campbell, and he said, hey, let's read. We, we worked together. He was the veterinarian. I was a tech. And I would come in about a half an hour early, and we would read a chapter in the Gospels, more or less, and then we would talk about how Jesus did life with the Father, how he did life with the disciples. And I was learning, they were handing off this ability to understand what it was that was happening in the relationship, not just creating a bunch of things to memorize, not just a bunch of things to be aware of, not information, but transformation. He was showing me how to build my relationship with God, like Jesus built his relationship with God. How to build my relationship with Jesus like the disciples built their relationship with Jesus. And so that different framework began to guide me and to correct me and usher me into a sense of where I was experiencing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in reading His Word on a daily basis. It comes to you in a different way, but it wasn't about all the memorizing and things. Now, I did manage to memorize a lot of things along the way. The reality is, is that I really depend on things like Matthew chapter 6 and looking at the whole thing of, the, you know, and praying those prayers, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in me, in my life. I, I, I really relish Psalm 23 and the promise that, the, that he is my shepherd. And because he's my shepherd, I want, I lack for nothing that I can say with him that like a sheep, who walks into a green field and would normally be munching because there's food all around you, that I am still and lie down in that plentiful... It's like going to the buffet table and not ponying up because I'm satisfied that I can go to the still waters. You know what the still waters are? You ever left a bowl out for your dog of water? And that dog who will lick everything, including a toilet seat, won't drink the water. Why? Because still water is nasty. It's full of slime. When you are so satisfied in who he is that when you have confidence that he's the shepherd who leads you, when you're so satisfied in him that you, are no, you don't have to worry about the green pastures or even if you're by side still waters, you lie down, you relax, you trust his leading, that you can say with confidence, as David said, even if I walk through the valley, even in the shadow of death, I fear no evil. That's the transformative power of the gospel. And it's where those things begin to like make a deposit in me, not so that I can say I memorized scripture or I did the hard work of all these things, but instead so that I could lean into who God is and my relationship with him. And those become transformative. They become, in, they're not just information. I don't just believe them in the sense of made a mental ascent. I begin to believe them because they are transforming my inner man so that whenever I do lay my head down, I do have that confidence. It's not just a mental ascent. It's running through my entire body that I have confidence in who he is or maybe you could do one of the things I've been doing in recent time it's not a specific uh, spiritual discipline in the New Testament but just setting a timer on my phone every hour to remind me of things I had a conversation with somebody earlier this week I said can I just encourage you why don't you just listening to what they said and their, their, their head knowledge and the things that they hear from God that are not from God 
that there's the, the things that they play over and over again in their mind, and I just let them to Zephaniah 3.17, that God whirls around in delight at the very thought of you, that he dances over you with joy. I said, you know what? You need to change the narrative in your head. Your head says that you're not enough. Your head says that you're a failure. Your head says that God is disappointed in you. No wonder you're depressed. No wonder you're overwhelmed. No wonder you can point out all the failures and how you didn't disciple your kids enough or you didn't do this enough and you didn't do that enough and you just start critiquing yourself and critiquing yourself. I don't live there. And neither should you. The enemy is the accuser of the brethren, not God. And so maybe one of the things you just do is use a little technology today and you set a reminder to tell yourself and you maybe put that verse on there and it pops up and it reminds you of who God is and you pray through that. You say, yes, God, I believe you really do feel that way about me. I really believe that that's why you gave your life for me, not because you owed someone else, not because of the demands of the law, but because you had compassion on me, because you have mercy, because John 3.16 says you so loved the entire world including me. Not that you were irritated, not that you were disappointed, not that the law demanded you better do this job, but the God of all mercy and grace said, in the Old Testament, I whirl around in delight at the very thought of you. I promise you, you let that get in your heart and head and it will change the way you respond to the leadership of God, not just mentally, but physically. It will change you in a way that you cannot imagine. Purposely meeting people, journaling, all kinds of good things. I don't have time to do it more exhaustively. Can I just simply say to you, like if you uh, have tried pressing into the spiritual disciplines and you just like felt like, Man, this is not doing anything. I'm not seeing any victory in this. I am frustrated. I am disappointed. Um, I just want to tell you, just in, in, a, in the most merciful, graceful way I know how to tell you, is that your experience, sadly, is normative in the Christian church. Sadly, it's normative. And, and, and it's because of people like me who stood up here for 30-plus years on a stage and told everybody everything that you're supposed to do Go read your Bible, go do this, go do that, and then left you to your own means. And so for that, I am truly sorry. I am sorry for every part I have played in it. I am sorry for every pastor who has done that to you. The end result is, is that we have people who have been sitting in a performance situation in an auditorium auditing God, and there's not much fruit. And a lot of people feeling like they have no victory. It's estimated that somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of all people do not pray on a regular basis, of all Christians. So if you just look around the room, not pointing anyone out, I'm just simply saying, if you look around the room, you're in good company. 60% of all pastors don't pray regularly. That's disturbing. I don't mean that in a critical way. I mean there's something wrong. There's something really wrong. And so one of the things I'm going to do this fall, I'm going to do a class 
Uh, again, I did it back in 2019. A lot of people experienced some real grace and freedom from that. But we're going to do a class again and just go back in, delving in about how do you use spiritual disciplines to help you grow in your walk and in your relationship with God and, uh, and begin to walk people. If you were in it last time and you think, well, I, you know, it went pretty well, but I, you know, I didn't get everywhere, come back. Like that's part of growth. It doesn't, it's not one and done. Let me invite you to come to that. I'll get you the date eventually, sooner than later. On the other hand, like if you like grew up and you you know you've been doing all the practicing the disciplines and you just like kind of got nowhere. Like I'm I'm so sorry. On one hand, on, on the other hand, I just want to say um, I want to encourage you that there is power in these things. That there is the transformative power of the gospel and the fact that you haven't gotten to experience it. Like, I, I, I think that's on us as, the, you know, uh, as leadership to make sure that people get the opportunity to experience that. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.